Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly, with you in studio Amir Tibon. On today's episode we have a special interview with a man who earlier this year became the most famous rabbi in America, after he and his congregants were taken hostage at gunpoint during prayer services. Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, previously of the Beth Israel congregation in Colleyville, Texas, joins us to tell his incredible story and discuss guns, mental health and security from a Jewish perspective. But before that, we're starting with an urgent news story that broke this weekend with a mysterious announcement from Moscow that the Russian government was looking into outlawing the Jewish agency's activities on Russian soil. Is Russia retaliating for Israel's position on Ukraine? Is Vladimir Putin personally involved in the decision? And how should Israel respond? To discuss this urgent matter, we have with us Sam Sokol, Haaretz reporter, who's been on top of the story ever since last week. Hello, Sam. Thanks for having me, Amir. So, first of all, can you explain to our readers who maybe were not following this story, and anybody who was following your reporting on Haaretz.com is very up-to-date about this, but perhaps some others who don't know what happened here. Well, it appears that the uh, Russian Ministry of Justice has requested that a uh, Moscow court shut down all of the operations of the Jewish agency's uh, local affiliate. The uh, In Russia. In Russia, exactly. The uh, Russian government has been investigating the Jewish agency for some time, claiming that it's that the body is violating local data storage laws by collecting information on Russian citizens who are interested in immigrating to Israel. And I think it's important to note that this comes against the background of a larger crackdown on civil society organizations and the media, and that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, in fact, recently signed a bill which would widen the definition of a foreign agent to any local body which receives any sort of aid or assistance from abroad, not just funding. So do we know why specifically the Jewish agency have now found itself on this list of growing organizations that are being targeted by Putin's regime ever since the start of the war in Ukraine? We don't particularly know the specific reasons in this case. There is disagreement uh, within the Israeli government. Uh, there are some who believe that this is retaliation for Israel's position on Ukraine, which has been rather equivocal, but it could be that Israel has gone too far towards the Ukrainian side to suit the Kremlin. There are others who point out that uh, the Russian look into the activities of the Jewish agency began uh, prior to uh, some of the actions on the Israeli side, which might have prompted such a reaction. And it's not even sure that this is necessarily coming from the Kremlin itself. It's important to remember that uh, the Russian system, while technically an autocracy, could also be defined as an adhocracy, meaning that many uh, branches of the government and even within the same branches, there are competing interests and that there that try different things and go in different directions and that the Kremlin then decides to pick which of these approaches seems to be working. So there's very much the possibility that this is coming from a lower level uh, bureaucrat at the Justice Ministry. It's very possible that this is a top level attack on Israel and Israeli interests from the Kremlin in pursuit of some strategic goal, but it's still unclear. They haven't really given any reason other than the stated rationale, and we don't really have any idea. What we 
can say and what makes this ironic is that uh, Russian propaganda against Ukraine has previously claimed that the Ukrainians, who the Russians define as Nazis, have begun shutting down Jewish organizations in Ukraine, which is absolutely not true. So what we're seeing the Russians doing now is actually the same thing that they've previously accused the uh, Ukrainians of doing. Well, that wouldn't be the first time something like that happens, but definitely an interesting thing to note. Um, you have a great story on Haaretz.com interviewing several top Israeli national security experts and the former ambassador to Russia. Um, what are they making of this? Do they see this as a Russian-Israeli crisis or more of a tactical situation that needs to be resolved through diplomatic channels? The general consensus seems to be that while we can't say for sure what the reason is, uh, there's some speculation that it could be related to uh, Putin's recent uh, visit to Tehran. There's speculation in for a whole variety of reasons that this could have happened. But what seems to be the consensus is that relations with Russia, while not as important on a strategic or a moral level as relations with the United States, are critical for Israel's uh, security, and that this has to be handled in a very careful and diplomatic way, that this is not yet the time for any grand gestures. Uh, Prime Minister Lapid has said that closing the Jewish agency could bring about a rupture to one degree or another in relations, and the experts I've spoken to have very much cautioned that things have to be taken slowly and uh, very carefully. There has to be a very calibrated response. Does this situation present any kind of new danger to Russian Jews? Uh, you spoke last week to Natan Sharansky, former head of the Jewish agency and one of the most famous uh, Russian uh, Jews in the world. Um, what does he think about this? What does this mean for the Russian Jewish community? Well, I'd like to first preface that by saying that uh, community sources have previously told me that there has been pressure on uh, communal leaders to support the war. Uh, we do know that the chief rabbi of Moscow has already fled Russia and is in Israel. And Sharansky has previously told me that uh, he is very harshly critical of the Israeli response. He accused uh, then Prime Minister Bennett of being afraid of Putin. And on Friday, he issued a public statement uh, calling on any Russian Jew who is looking to make Aliyah and move to Israel to expedite their plans as fast as possible before any possible closure. Uh, one thing that we've seen that's been very interesting during the current conflict is that while there is a massive refugee issue in Ukraine, which obviously also includes Ukrainian Jews, the number of Russian Jews coming to Israel outstrips the number of Ukrainian Jews by a significant margin. And a large part of that is because there's been a very significant crackdown on civil society, on free speech, and the economy is in free fall. So while there aren't many countries that are willing to accept uh, Russians at this point, at least Western countries that they might uh, want to go to, Israel is fully willing to take any Russian Jews. So we're seeing that increase. And the threat, uh, I think this is something that gives the threat to close down the Jewish agency extra impetus. 
Sam, thank you so much for joining us and I invite the listeners to keep following this important story and specifically your reporting on it on Haaretz.com. Thank you, Amir. Up next, our special interview with Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker. Six months ago, on a quiet Saturday morning, Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker performed a small act of kindness. He opened the doors of his synagogue in a Texas suburb to a stranger. What followed were 11 hours of drama, during which he and members of his congregation were taken hostage. President Biden later called the ordeal an act of terror. Now, half a year later, Rabbi Citron Walker joins us on the Haaretz Weekly Podcast to talk about that day, during which he displayed a great deal of courage, and also offer his perspective on the growing debate in the U.S. regarding gun laws and mental health. Hello, Rabbi. Hello, Shalom. Over one weekend in January of this year, you became for a moment the most famous rabbi in America, and your congregation's name was out in all the headlines. Tell us in a few sentences about yourself and about Congregation Beth Israel before that day, January 15, 2022. Well, Amir, thank you so much. It's great to be with you today. For me, I, st- I grew up in Lansing, Michigan. I spent time in the Detroit area after I graduated from the University of Michigan. Uh, I went to Israel. I spent the, my first wedding anniversary uh, in Israel when I uh, lived there, 2001 to 2002. Well, these are dramatic years here in Israel, the years of the Second Intifada. In the middle of the Matzav, Ken. It was a very incredible year, and it was a very challenging year. Uh, my first year of rabbinical school was uh, cut short. Uh, people were given the opportunity to complete their year uh, wherever they wanted to after the horrible incident at Moment Cafe. Uh, and you, you, You're bringing back uh, memories to me and I'm sure to many of our listeners of those difficult times in Jerusalem. It was... Again, it was an incredible year of learning, but a very challenging year uh, for, for me, for the entire population of Israel. That was, that's a part of my experience. Unfortunately, I knew what a pigua sounded like long before uh, I heard the FBI and the SWAT team reaching the congregation yeah, it's, uh, that it's, night. It's 20 years apart, uh, what, you know, the experiences you saw in Jerusalem and what happened in Colleyville in January of this year. But it's interesting to hear from you the connection between the two things. Challenging, difficult moments. Um, but at the same time, like I, in spite of the difficulty and the challenges, I fell in love with Israel. I learned so much in Israel. And... And look, when it comes to being able to get through the situation that I was in, who knows what kind of an impact uh, being able to live through and experience that time. It was a valuable and important part of my life. After I spent four years in Cincinnati studying to become a rabbi, uh, 16 years uh, as the rabbi in Colleyville, Texas at Congregation Beth Israel. So describe this, describe this community for our listeners. Um, it became very famous after the incident earlier this year. I assume almost everybody who listens to this podcast had never heard about it before and probably not since then. Tell us a bit about this place. How many members of the community 
what was it like uh, before uh, that uh, Saturday morning and 16 years. So must be a lot of experiences to share. It's a ex-bourbon community. It's the kind of place where people that don't want to live in the city, right? It's maybe a half an hour, 40 minutes driving uh, to Fort Worth or to Dallas. And it's close to the airport. And so you have this, there's not a, there's a lot of beautiful homes. There's a lot of, you know, shopping and, and those kinds of things. It's a very nice place. Uh, very, um, it's very hot. It's Texas, but it's... <laughs> You're telling this to, to us as we are in the studio in Tel Aviv, Israel. Um, we can sympathize with that part. Right. And I mean, right now in Texas, it's been, you know, 105, 106 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. I don't know how hot that is in Celsius, but it's hot. It's hot <laughs> it's, right now. It's pretty, yeah, that's, that's a lot. So it, it, was, it was a beautiful place. I raised my family there. There's only about 100 and, 150, 160, 170 uh, Jewish homes that were a part of the synagogue. There were less than 100 when I started out 16 years ago. That's interesting because it's a very different experience than what many Israelis, for example, coming from my place, uh, think about when they imagine American Jewry. We think about the major communities of New York and Los Angeles, but there are so many Jewish communities across the country, more like this one, right? You know, like you said, 160, 170 families, relatively small, not an area that you would consider some kind of a very, you know, Jewish uh, suburb, um, but there are Jewish communities like that as well. I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and I was the only Jewish kid in my school other than my brother and my sister, until I went to high school. And then there was like one or two more. And many of the kids in the Colleyville community, uh, my girls growing up, that was their experience. They were the only Jewish kid in the school. Uh, sometimes other kids might pick on them or certainly acknowledge the fact that uh, maybe they're going to try to convert uh, the girls. Now, it doesn't happen that often, but it's not an uncommon experience. And at the same time, when there's not a lot of Jews around and when you're a small Jewish community, you can really foster an incredible sense of, of pride and joy in being Jewish and celebrating the holidays, celebrating life cycle events together. And for communities like that, is security more of a challenge compared to a, a Jewish community in a large city or in a very Jewish neighborhood? I would say that 10 years ago, security wasn't that much of a concern. In general, all, all over the In Jewish general, <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say in general. I think that uh, what we're seeing now with, with a lot more violence and a lot more gun violence in America, uh, with not only a rise of anti-Semitism, um, but obviously there has been an increase in anti-Semitism in America and throughout the world. We've really had to put more of a focus on it. And, and what did you have in place on that morning in, of uh, January 15, 2022? Um, what kind of security exists at your synagogue at the time? Well, so one of the most important things was just the training that we had held. And I've credited this training. I can talk more about what that looked like. But I started taking training over six years ago. Uh, I attended an FBI summit uh, and 
the FBI hosted uh, people from all different religious backgrounds so that we can start to learn about how to respond if there's an active shooter, how to create an emergency action plan. So that way, if there's an emergency, not just a security emergency, but a medical emergency, a weather emergency, any kind of emergency, a fire, that there's a plan in place and that there is leadership who knows and has an understanding of what's supposed to happen when it happens. And so we did that work and we created those emergency action plans. We were looking at security on a variety of different levels, uh, from things like security cameras uh, to employing and having guards, you know, off-duty officers or things along those lines. And yet in the middle of January, we were just coming back to opening up the building. Uh, services were still mostly online, but we had a, a few people that were in attendance. Because of COVID, right? Everything went remote, and now you are starting to come back again. This is when this incident happens. Correct. And we had this idea, well, you know, if you needed a certain amount of people before we were going to have the expense of hiring a security guard. Mm, so the synagogue is, is, the synagogue is not anywhere near capacity. Right. It's, it's, it's how many people are in the building on that Saturday morning? Well, no. So on that Saturday morning, there was, I mean, Larry, Larry came early to help me out and he's been, an, he was an incredible volunteer. He was a new member to the community. He had moved out from California. Uh, we had the, uh, our uninvited guests, right? The person that I thought looked like a homeless guy. Uh, and then we had the vice president of the congregation, Jeff Cohen. And then about 15 minutes into the service, uh, was, uh, Shane Woodward arrived. And these are, it was, it was just us. It's basically you and three other people. And, exactly. then, and then this guest that soon will turn out to be the hostage taker. Yeah. And, 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 and what is the first interaction you have with him? So the first thing he said was, do you have a night shelter? I did not see... any red flags. This guy looked like he was just needed. It was so cold that day. It was in the lower 30s. It was at freezing. Uh, and that's, Texas doesn't usually get that cold. So it was a situation where it was freezing outside. This guy looked like he had spent the night on the street. And what was he asking for? He was asking if we had a night shelter. And so the idea that I could, my initial assessment That I could let him in, that I could open up our locked doors, because that was really we, we had locked doors, and that was it. But I opened up the locked doors to let him in so that he could uh, come in and get warm. And then I stayed with him. I stayed with him as I, when I, as I offered him coffee, he asked for tea, and so I got a cup of tea together, and I was talking with him the entire time. I was asking him questions. I was trying to find out his story, A, because that's the hospitable thing to do, but B, because that also has a security benefit, right? If there was something that was off, if there was something about his demeanor, if there was something that didn't seem right, I would have been able, I thought I would have been able to tell, right? I mean, like I didn't have such training, but this guy was, he was very... calm. He looked me in the eye. He was someone who, again, appeared to be 
what he said he was. And I was wrong. Like, I, I was wrong, but so he, I sit him down. And when do you realize that you were wrong? I didn't realize that I was wrong until I heard the click of the gun in the middle of the service. After you bring him in, and I have to say with an act of kindness and an act that I think also corresponds to what we both probably consider Jewish values of helping those in need, um, you then continue to your... Uh, responsibility of leading the services in the synagogue and it's like you said it's it's four people attending physically and others watching it online right you're doing it still hybrid and people are watching the service on their computers or phones uh, via some kind of camera exactly we had a camera uh, pointed at the bima we had microphones that were bima microphones but uh, could also pick up a little bit um, from what was going on And uh, outside, like, you have to be careful what you say because, you know, the microphones do pick up. And, <laughs> and, and this was very common at the time at, at many American synagogues. Yes, exactly. Kind of and, we, and it still is today. It still is. Um, but back then, I mean, in January, we had, I don't know, seven, eight, nine uh, people, different devices that were connected on Zoom. And then while you are in service and some of these people are watching, that's when you hear the click of the gun. Yes, so it was during the Amidah. Everybody was turned and faced towards the ark. I mean, everybody, right? There wasn't many of us. He was in the back near the kitchen. And I hear this click and I turn around because it sounded like the click of a gun. And I was hoping it wasn't because our building makes lots of different noises. It could have been lots of different kinds of things. And when I turned around, everything looked normal. He knew when I turned around that I had heard the click and had a sense of what was happening. And that's when, again, he was far enough. There wasn't anything that I could do in that moment. I was really at his mercy. I put my hands up and stepped back and was, I was feeling a lot of emotion. What's running through your mind at that moment? I'd say everything from I let this guy in to I hope we don't all die to am I about to die to what can I do? Does he say anything? Oh, yes. He starts uh, speaking about how he has not only does he have the gun, but he also has bombs. And he says that he loves death more than we love life. Oh, wow. That's right. And I mean, it was, he got our attention right away with the gun, with the kinds of things that he was talking about. Eventually he asked for, for us to get the police on the phone so that we could uh, section off the area so that the houses nearby that no innocent civilians would be harmed so that the houses could get cleared out i was thinking about us as innocent civilians but you know i couldn't say that at the moment so he held us at gunpoint and he tells us that america cares more about its jews than anybody else because jews control everything Does he threaten you throughout this lecture or does he just explain to you his 
anti-Semitic view of the world and you were listening. Well, what's the dynamic there? We were doing a lot of listening throughout the course of the day. <laughs> we were, I mean, we were doing some, and I was doing a little bit of gentle pushback, but in a very gentle way. But mostly I was listening because this guy needed to talk. It, we realized pretty quickly this was a hostage situation, not an active shooter situation. So the police and the FBI, they are gathered outside, but you are still in there with him. Do you think you are going to make it out alive? What are you thinking? I mean, are you praying? Right, this is 11 hours. What, what runs through your mind? So a lot of, I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts over the course of the day. We're, he gives us opportunity to call our family a couple times. And so I was thinking a lot about them. There were points in time where we did not think that we were going to make it out, especially at the very end. There were points in time where he's, you know, we knew that it was a false sense of security, but we were clinging to any kind of hope. He actually told us that he was not going to hurt us at one point during the day. Uh, he, we listened as he was talking to his family. He had a number of calls to his family, um, explaining what was going on. Uh, there was plenty of just trying to wrap my head around the fact that it was actually happening. There was a lot of guilt that I had let this guy in. There was a lot of uh, trying to figure out. I'd say that most of the time I was trying to figure out how could I communicate because he, we had our phones. You know, I was on my computer. He was using my phone to talk with the negotiators. And there were text messages, there were emails. I was literally texting and emailing with the chief of police who I had a relationship with. So it was a long, emotional day. And at the end, he's not getting what he wants. Because this convicted terrorist that he had wanted the U.S. government to release from jail, that's not happening. That's not happening. And then what, he gets angry? So he starts to get, he starts to lose patience and he starts to lose more patience. And right at the end, I had not done this. None of us had really begged for our lives. At the end, I thought that he was going to kill us. He was talking about how he had been so compassionate. And now, now, you know, God was telling him not to be compassionate anymore. And He was making these kinds of comments very threatening. He was telling the negotiator, at the, at the very end, he told the negotiator that he was going to start killing us one by one until, you know, he got what he wanted. And when he hung up the phone, he was extremely, extremely agitated. And we thought that that was it. I, I, I had been. trying to remind him of our humanity. I was basically begging for my life. Uh, and that wasn't the right tact, so I stopped because he wasn't interested in hearing that in that moment. But after he got off that last phone call, he got really calm and asked for some juice. And then I got really scared. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, then I, I was like, this is, this is it. 
and the FBI was around us, you know, there was, we could, you know, they were kind of in, you could see them kind of from the windows. And I was like, it's, there's ever a time. Now's the time guys, come on in. But then you ended up taking action. You didn't just wait for someone else to do something. Well, so I got him the juice. Well, instead of having juice, it was, uh, it was a pop. It was a soda because that's what he, you know, he changed his mind. I got him a glass or a cup. And so he's drinking, he's, he's, he's got his cup in his hand. So he's got a cup of liquid in his hand. He is preaching to us what I think is one last time. And for the first time all day, he doesn't have his hand on the trigger. He's got a hand on the gun, but his other hand, his trigger hand, is holding onto the cup. And the exit isn't that far away, right? There was an emergency exit. And... I said, if this is the best chance that we've had all day long. And so I told the guys to run because at that moment in time, I really thought that we were going to die. And I told uh, Larry had been released earlier in the day. Shane and Jeff were still in there with me. And I told them to run. And then I pick up uh, one, of the fo- one of the chairs that was it's uh, congregational chairs and I threw it at the gunman and I head for the door and we were all able to get out without a shot being fired did you hit him did the chair land on him I think so I didn't stick around to look <laughs> I, <laughs> I was I mean I I'm almost positive I had a lot of adrenaline running through me at that time and I just, in one motion, I just picked up the chair and threw it feet forward. Uh, it wasn't that heavy. And I, and I just headed for the door. And I was out the door. And there was FBI people all around us. You know, that we're, that we, you know, we, the training says you have to make sure that they know that you're not the gunman. So I got down on the ground after I was clear from the doorway. And around the side of the building that sounds like such a scary moment you've just won your life and your freedom after 11 hours and the biggest risk is that one of these police officers who from good intentions of wanting to kill the the gunman would get confused and shoot at you this can happen and so I got down on the ground and they called us to them and so I I went over um, and we were there for the maybe 20 seconds and we heard the boom of the uh, of the explosion of the FBI breaching the building and we did hear some gunfire inside and that was the end of the uh, that was the end of the situation when you're safe what's the first thought that comes to your mind oh my gosh I was just happy to be alive I was happy to 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 still be there I was happy that all of us were able to get out it was just joy and gratitude uh, it was so good to to hug my family um, who was at a elementary school a little ways away I had to get checked out by the medical people adrenaline was coursing through me right so it took it took a while to kind of calm down from that from that that adrenaline rush it was just gratitude and Gratitude for the FBI people, gratitude for the EMTs who checked me out, 
gratitude for you know gratitude to be alive uh, gratitude to 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 god and and all of the different things that went right that enabled us to survive when you look at this story today uh, more than half a year later you're now living in another town leading another community um do you see a bigger problem than just the tactical things that happened on that day you opening the door to the guy a larger problem that needs to be addressed in American society or maybe specifically for the Jewish community I think that there's lots of issues there are major issues this guy came to America right he traveled from England and he knew it wasn't a question he knew that That he was going to be able to get a gun in America it, it there was no doubt in his mind that it was going to be possible and when we have our kids that are going through lockdown drills which I never grew up with I mean the idea that houses of worship can be thought of as a target and that we have to talk about hardening our facilities it's a terrible thing and And so when one of the first conversations, I'm trying to meet my new community here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and one of the first groups that I have to meet with is the security team. That's a problem. That's a challenge in our society. What's the biggest lesson that you take with you from this entire ordeal, this experience that um, in a way made you a very famous person for a moment? Um, and will probably stay with you for the rest of your life. Um, what is the one big lesson that you take from it? I think there are several. I think that the the lesson that we need to be able to live our values, all of them, even the ones that are challenging, even the ones that are difficult, we need to be able to live our values, live those values of hospitality, live those values of welcoming the stranger to the best of our ability. I think that we need to be able to care for our security, right? That has been a strength in Israel. As challenging as moments have been, there's a lot of or there's a lot been a lot of success with regard to a sense of security. At the same time, we got to try to figure out how to balance those two. right? How do we have a sense of hospitality? And how do we have a sense of security at the same time? And as I was just saying, we, we need to be able to tone down the rhetoric. We need to be able to connect and understand one another and not demonize people who think differently or who look at things differently. We need to be able to work together to solve our problems because we've got problems that we need to address. So with that important message, uh, we will finish this conversation. Rabbi Charlie Seitron-Walker, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your incredible story and the lessons that you learned from it. It's really been a pleasure. Amir, great to talk with you. Take care. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. A special thanks to Dina Barish for her incredible work. On this episode today and to Shania Viram our producer and of course to you listeners election overdose our political podcast will be here again this weekend and until our next meeting Shalom from Tel Aviv